But the thing is, for investors to make a profit because of so many of these costs associated with buying and owning an artwork for anyone, not just masterwork, they almost like have to double in price for investors to have any kind of a significant return. That doesn't happen very often. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Okay, so want to buy a Picasso? No, it's too expensive. Fine, I totally get it. That's fair. Want to buy a teensy, weensy, tiny little microscopic fleck of a Picasso? That sounds better, doesn't it? Or does it? Believe it or not, that kind of sales pitch is actually gaining traction in a big way in the wild world of fractional art sales, where massive new startup companies are buying up the bluest of blue chip art, think Basquiat, Joan Mitchell, and Ed Ruscher, and selling what are essentially shares in these pieces to speculative investors. It's rapidly becoming a big business. But what do you actually get if you buy a share in a painting? How does it work? And what is it really worth? To find out, I'm very happy to be joined on the show today by Artnet News senior reporter Katja Kazakina, author of the incredible Art Detective column, about her new in-depth report on fractional art funds for the spring edition of the Artnet News Pro Intelligence Report, which just dropped last week. Thanks very much for coming back on The Art Angle, Katja. I'm so glad to be here. So you kick off your article by talking about Picasso's Fillette au Beret, or Young Girl au Beret. What makes that 1964 Picasso painting notable today? It's a very charming painting, but that's not why we're talking about it. Last year, a bank in Switzerland tokenized this painting into 4,000 shares. Each of these shares cost 1,000 Swiss francs, and they offered it to investors to participate in. So effectively, an investor could buy a share. There were a minimum of five shares. Each of the shares was recorded on the blockchain. So you could just have a little portion of this Picasso and wait for a few years until the bank would sell it, hopefully for a profit, and then make some money. And so what does it mean to buy a share in a Picasso? And how does that compare with buying a share of stock in a tech company like Apple, for instance? It's really a much smaller market. We're talking about such a nascent field, Andrew, and this is not something a lot of people do. This is something that two years ago was totally like a marginal corner of the art market. And it seemed to me even kind of a crazy thing that some new companies were doing. Fast forward two years after the pandemic, it's a totally different landscape. Everybody is trying to get into this market and figure out how to use this blockchain technology to make money of different assets. And art is one of those assets. So let's take Signum Bank in Switzerland that specializes in digital assets, that their profile. So an investor would just buy their portion of shares, minimum of five, and individual contract would be recorded on the blockchain. And each of the investors would have to go through a very intense vetting by the bank, by authorities, anti-money laundering, KYC, all kinds of things, FBI. It takes weeks, it takes months, it's long and laborious from what I understand. 
And then if they approved, they would be able to purchase whatever share they want. They have to open a digital wallet with the bank. Then it's really just technology. There's no third party involved. The money, when the work is sold, all comes back to the bank and it digitally gets distributed to the investors. People who set this up, they say that there's no kind of place for human error. And because of very staunch regulations, nobody can really steal this digital wallet from you. The bank knows your identity and has vetted you. So it's a safe investment. So this is not exactly a new thing, even though it sounds radical. There have been all these fine art funds around for years, decades, even in the beginning of the 20th century there were a smattering of art funds that were popping up. So is a thing that really distinguishes this new breed of these art investment companies from the old ones that they have the blockchain? Well, I think the old companies, you know, there have been investment funds, of course, also dealers for decades have gone in together on acquiring works. One work, two, three dealers will go in on one acquisition. So in a way, it is also fractional, right? You know, I think that the art market and the investing community for the past 20 years, plus two decades, as the prices of art have risen, tried to figure out like what's the best way to monetize art. And we used to look at these paintings and draw inspiration, aesthetical pleasure, you know, all kinds of things. But some of the artworks, a lot of the artworks that we cover have proven to be amazing investments. They may not have been set out to become kind of looking old school collectors, but they, in many cases, have surpassed all other types of investment. You know, we've talked on the previous podcast about Harry and Linda Macklow, whose divorce brought this huge art trove to the market. And one of the reasons it's being sold to split the assets, but because art has become the best, the most successful investment in their portfolio. And they've invested in bonds and stocks and real estate and yachts and whatever, all these things. And art has outperformed all of them. So we are now in this moment where I think technology has finally caught up and offers investors this possibility to finally split that Picasso into 4,000 pieces. Previously, investors would pull their resources and funds, and then they would buy works of art and co-own them. And then down the line, they would sell them and split the proceeds and the funds would have multiple works, right? But there was always this stumbling block okay, we buy, we invest into all these artworks, but I also want to live with it. Like, how do we split up these trophy works? Why should they be only sitting in a free port somewhere? And it was very difficult to sort out how to enjoy the works that they invest in. But right now, kind of post-pandemic, we're in a completely new landscape because the idea of this physical ownership has been radically expanded to the point where You don't need to own the work. You could just own a share of it. So is this what people mean when they talk about the financialization of the art market? Because people have always talked about just watching, you know, the skyrocketing price that paintings would achieve at auction and saying, okay, these are essentially financial instruments. Is the difference now that the distinctions that used to separate them from being traditional financial instruments on par with bonds and stocks 
that they're, you know, these unique objects that you venerate, that you show in a museum, et cetera. Is the important thing now that that difference is evaporating? That difference is evaporating. But I think the one thing that changed how we consume art, and I think during the pandemic, we couldn't interact with art in person. And the idea that you could buy something without seeing just became kind of commonplace. And at the same time, I think the appeal of the artwork as a potential investment has reached beyond this small art world, right? It's a fairly elitist place, right? We're talking about huge amounts of money being spent on these artworks. Very few people in the world can afford them. And if you split an artwork, you find a way to offer a share of something for an affordable price of, I don't know, $20, suddenly a lot more people can participate in this market. And I think that scaling the market up has been a huge challenge for auction houses, galleries, and other market participants. And so suddenly, when you have this retail investor interested in the art market, that potentially is a complete game changer. It brings thousands and possibly more people into the market. So I want to delve into these new kinds of buyers. But first, tell me, who are some of the biggest players who are building out this fractional art industry? The biggest company, I would say, is Masterworks. They were founded in 2017 and really expanded, I would say, in the last two years during the pandemic. What they do is they buy an artwork and then they file documents with the Securities and Exchange Commission and basically offer them artworks like IPOs to investors, thousands and thousands of investors. And their starting share is $20. So it's infinitely more affordable. Like one of the people I interviewed for a story, he said, it's like, go, it's like buying a ticket to a movie, essentially. And they have become really big. They've invested between three and 400 million in art purchases just last year. And they also have secured over 100 million in Series 1 funding last year. And they kind of are considered almost like a unicorn with a billion dollar valuation. And then there are smaller companies. One of them is called Yield Street. It's been established in 2015. They have collections of works by artists, sort of like different funds. Each fund has its own theme. One of them, for example, specializes in African-American artists, sort of from the Harlem Renaissance to contemporary artists working today, like Glenn Ligon. They have also secured more than $300 million in investing. A new company that was launched just last year is called Particle, and it was co-funded by Louis Guzer, who is a former executive and rainmaker at Christie's, very innovative thinking guy who brought us the $450 million Salvador Mundi sale, as many people remember. Anyhow, he left Christie's and has done different things, but landed with this new startup. And what it does is basically divides each artwork into little like 100 by 100 square grids, a particle. 
each work has 10,000 of these particles. And what investors actually buy is like a specific particle, like the upper right corner or in the middle little particle. And so they actually work physical tiny piece of an artwork. We were talking about earlier, Signum Bank and the Picasso, there wasn't any specific piece of the artwork that investors invested in, right? It was just a share. Here, it's as a physical piece. I'm not sure how it would be traded. And the minimum investment there is $1,500. And then there is also a company called Rares, fairly new. It was founded in 2020. It focuses on shoes. So think about it like Masterworks, but for shoes, Rares sneakers. They do the same thing. They file with SEC and then offer shares to investors for as low as $25 a pop. And then, you know, we're hearing about art funds powered by this blockchain technology on the horizon. And one of them is being led by a collaboration between a company called Artery that has been in the blockchain through like provenance more and tracking provenance on individual artworks and also Winston Art Group that is a major appraising company in the art world. And so they are joining forces to create a fund. Okay, I have about a billion questions for you (laughs) about what you just said. The one thing that kind of, I think, especially melts my brain about this whole thing is that you were saying that the way that these companies securitize and turn these artworks into stocks is that they launch them in an IPO, an initial public offering. Most people know about IPOs in terms of major companies going public on the stock market and trying to get investment through shareholders. How on earth can you make a painting act like a company? How can you treat one like a corporation that you would bring into an IPO? You just do. You file like 100 pages of very small text document, and they've become so good at it. It's exactly what you said. They treat each artwork as an LLC. Do there have to be individual people who have you know governance positions attached to each artwork? So not the investor, but, you know, they're the CEO of Masterworks, the CFO, they're a lawyer who signs off on every one of these filings. And they're really very, very dense. They're also incredibly revealing. I mean, the amount of paperwork that Masterworks generates with SEC is just insane. I don't, I just wonder, does anyone at SEC read them? Does any of the investors read them? Do they know what they are signing up for? I'm just curious. I am a nerd in this sense. So I went down this rabbit hole and found out all kinds of different things that are all in plain sight. And they're very smart because they lay it all out. They lay out the risks, they lay out the rewards, they lay out the cyclicality of the art market, they lay out all of their fees. It's very difficult to find, but it's all there. So I think that they protect themselves from that perspective. But it also, for me, as someone who kind of is always obsessed with writing about the art market in a way that's making things more transparent, it's really fascinating. Once you figure out where things are and how they are filed, you know, you just learn a lot of different things about who is selling what, who is buying what, because all the names and all the numbers and all the purchase prices and all the contract terms, they're all laid out there. You just have to know where to find them. 
So your column is called The Art Detective, and that's kind of almost a literal description of what you do. You are like a detective, and this kind of paperwork is a goldmine for you. And what did you find out about what kind of artworks Masterworks is buying? And what did you find out about the way that they kind of game the system or create favorable conditions to get these artworks? First of all, allow me just to take a step back. Two years ago, a colleague of mine at Bloomberg wrote about Masterworks and a bunch of other companies were offering fractional ownership in sneakers and collectibles and horse races and art. And like I said earlier, they seem very marginal to me. But as the pandemic took hold, I noticed, I just started getting for some reason the notifications like Google Alerts or Masterworks. Maybe I had a Google Alert set for a masterwork or a masterpiece or something. And they started coming with increasing pace. And as you remember, the first months of the pandemic, they were terrifying. But here was this company that kept buying art one after another at this very steady clip. And I started paying attention. And so I talked with Scott Lynn, the founder of this company. He was very eager to talk about what they've been doing and connected me with investors. And we can talk about it later. But since that time, they really picked up pace. And so initially they were buying things that were maybe like a little bit under a million to a little bit over a million. But in the last year, they just went on this buying spree. I mean, they bought some very, very expensive works. I found like in the past auction cycle in November, they buy a lot of works by Basquiat. They buy Keith Haring, Kuzama, Warhol, Christopher Wool. John Mitchell is another favorite of theirs. And they bought things for up to like $20 million. So some of these purchases are very significant. They work with every single auction house. They work Christie, Sotheby's, Phillips. They also buy through their private sale departments. They work with major galleries like White Cube and Scarstead. They buy from big market movers like the Mugrabi family. They bought a work from a collector, Stephen Tannenbaum. They're really everywhere. And all of this stuff is in their filings, kind of hidden here and there. What's interesting is that they buy a work of art and when they offer it as an IPO to the investors, right off the bat, they add 10 to 11% to the value. So they immediately make you know a cut right there. And then they sell it off to investors. They have a management fee, an annual management fee. When they sell, they would charge you, obviously, a percentage of the sale. Also, in their offering documents, you know, if they end up selling right, right now, they've been selling through third parties, like through an auction house or another private dealer. But they have been really expanding and hiring a lot of people. And so conceivably, they can hire people who would sell things for them in-house. And if they sell things in-house and not through a third party, they would charge you a standard kind of a brokerage fee as an auction house would or a dealer. So there are all these fees that they charge. And so they themselves are doing great. <laughs> They're making and they in a position to make money because by offering it to investors, they essentially flip it. So the investors buy them out. And they make this 11% right off the bat. And then potentially more and more and more.
what happened when you tried to get an interview with the CEO of Masterworks? You know, two years ago, I reached him very easily. We had multiple conversations. He connected me with his clients, the actual people who buy shares in these artworks. And then we had a very easygoing exchange. And I was writing for Bloomberg at the time. I just assumed that we're going to have as amicable and lovely conversation this time around. But I tried to reach him. He didn't respond. Then I got an email back from, I guess, there flag, the PR guy, I emailed him and he basically said they were not interested in talking to art publications anymore because they're not interested in the art world. They're interested in the real investors and not the art people. So what does that mean? <laughs> what, what does that tell you about their strategy? You would think that usually when you buy these multi-million dollar, you know, masterpieces of art history that you'd kind of be thinking about selling it to an art collector. But so who are they targeting as their audience who is not an art collector? Well, that's the thing. Like they are targeting retail investors, completely different audience, really an audience that knows nothing about the intricacies of the art market that has potentially some cursory interest in the art. The people I talked to back in 2020, they said like they had a grandmother who took them to a museum or they just like Banksy or whatever. Like they have interest in art, but they don't actually interested in owning any art because they would rather have a share of Warhol's Maryland than actually have Warhol's Maryland in their home because that's just a headache. They have to be worried about someone stealing it. Or what about the insurance and where you put it? They don't know any of this stuff. They're not interested in any of this stuff. They're kind of happy with just owning a little piece of it and never seeing it or potentially, you know, organizing a visit with Masterworks in New York and maybe seeing it there. Although from all the documents that I've seen, all the paintings that they buy are being shipped to a Freeport in Delaware with zero tax paid on them. It's a different person. As a force, right? As a group, there's so many of these investors now investing in masterworks in their offerings that they actually own jointly really significant works of art, very valuable and pretty amazing. And yet they have no interest in them beyond being an asset. Now, last summer, something happened in the financial world that captivated everybody. Everybody remembers GameStop and the rise of this new activist investor class that was not coming from the ranks of the billionaires of the world, but actually from these real retail investors who banded together, used the internet to create a huge hive and went after GameStop, pumped up the value into these uh, stratospheric numbers and really shook the financial industry uh, to its core. How does what Masterworks is doing intersect with what we saw happen with GameStop? It's really the same people, right? It's the same type of an investor. In fact, a couple of people I interviewed back in 2020 when all of this was happening were GameStop investors. And suddenly they have power because of, like you said, they banded together and they now can really make significant moves. And so that power dynamic is really fascinating to me and how it's been playing out in the art market. Because 
if you think about it, like if you just imagine a single player who spends 300 million, 400 million a year on art, that person, like if they decide to just dump everything they bought, they have now over 120 works that they own, I think. And if the market turns and they have to liquidate, it could be catastrophic. Do you compare this phenomenon in your article to El Dorado, the fabled city of gold? Why is this moment like an El Dorado? Well, we don't really know, right? What is this moment really like? You know, right now we're just on the buy side. We're seeing how they're acquiring all these artworks. We don't really know what they're going to end up with and how successful the investments are going to be. The reason I thought about it is because if you go on Masterworks website, they are very savvy in how they present artworks as this really incredible financial assets. And we, as art journalists, and I kind of cringe at that in a way, because I know that I personally contributed to this phenomenon in a way. And a lot of my colleagues, because we write about big numbers, big names, market moving news, and it caught up with the financial community. And they see these crazy results. They see that a Basquiat that was bought in the 80s for $19,000 sold for $110 million in 2017. And there are multiple, multiple examples like that. But there are many, many more examples when this doesn't happen, right? We don't necessarily write about it because it's much harder to track. Nobody wants this exposure. You really need to dig, dig, dig. We know about artists that were so hot and then just totally exploded. And investments, you know, things that got bought in and flooded auction, blah, blah, blah. But if you look at Masterworks website, they have all these charts and graphs and it's always up, 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 up. The trajectory is always from zero into the hundreds, you know, and this is just not true. It's not true in general for any of the artists they're selling. It's not true for very specific artists and specific types of artwork. So it's kind of very self-serving in a way the way they present this information. And so, of course, for investors, they're like, it's only an upward trajectory. What's the risk? In the traditional art world, when you use a artwork as a financial asset, the rude awakening that a lot of collectors have is that there actually is not that much liquidity because the thing that you have to do in order to extract your money from the artwork is you have to sell it. <laughs> and it's not always so easy to find a buyer for this unique, incredibly expensive, highly specific object. So is there more liquidity when you're a fractional art investor? And can we anticipate that being something that holds true in the long run? I don't really see how or why that would be the case. I mean, the only way I guess they could cash out is that Masterworks, as well as Signum Bank, has the same thing. They have on their website as part of their digital web presence, they have secondary market platform where investors can trade shares. So if you have bought 20 shares of a Banksy, but you kind of want to get out of it, you could offer it on this internal platform and maybe somebody wants to buy you out. I think in Signum, one investor can offer to buy others out and maybe own the whole thing that's written into the smart contract. Otherwise, you just have to wait until Masterworks sell the work, subtracts all of their costs and fees, and then divvies out the profit. But the thing is, for investors to make a profit because of so many of these costs associated with buying and owning 
an artwork for anyone, not just masterwork, they almost like have to double in price for investors to have any kind of a significant return. That doesn't happen very often, as we know, right? For the article, I spoke with this economist, Michael Moses, who did over the years this huge study, repeat sales. He and his partner examined 50,000 repeat art sales over 50 years. And their research shows that only half a percent of the works return 100% or more. So half a percent doubled in price. And then I asked him, well, how many of these repeat sales increased by 10%? And he said that it's less than 10% of all works. That's kind of like a very sobering data point to me. This does not sound very good. (laughs) I have to say, this doesn't sound like a great investment opportunity. Has Masterworks actually sold any of the artworks in its portfolio and, and paid out dividends to shareholders? They sold three works so far, and they put out press releases saying, oh, we sold this thing, and we're going to distribute like 30% to our investors. And then there were some asterisks. But I don't know what happened because they wouldn't talk to me. So I don't know how much the investors really gotten after everything was said and done. But, you know, the market has been very strong. So it is possible that they did well on these three works. I don't have a reason to doubt it, but we really are at the peak of the market. Not right now, but I think May. It's just mind-boggling what's happening and all this art coming to auction. It's almost like the floodgates have been open, right? And everybody who was afraid to sell in the past two years is selling. Museums are selling, private collectors are selling. It's just crazy. We're going to have over $2 billion sales in May, potentially the largest ever. So if they sell something in the next few months, the investors will probably do well. The big concern is that what happens if and when the market turns, you can gain that. I mean, one question I have is in order to get the returns that you would need to do to keep this kind of business growing and keep the investors profiting, you'd need to be pretty much unerring in your decisions about which artworks you buy and the timing that you sell them. And so that reminds me that back in the GameStop moment, these new retail investors who were coming in, they were kind of, you know, uneducated about the fundamentals of the companies they were investing in, but they were very, you know, gung-ho about banding together and forcing these big moves and by corporate titans. You know, some people called them the apes, uh, as a reference to Rise of the Planet of the Apes, where you had these simians overthrowing the human civilization and taking over. And this was kind of like this revolutionary association that these, these investors wanted to have. And what happened is that you saw them also going after companies like AMC, which, uh, which you know, moribund kind of um, physical theater company that, that was really, you know, on the downward slope. Uh, and then these apes came in and they forced really weird decisions in the management of AMC. Do you think there's a possibility that the retail investors who are so, you know, significantly contributing to Masterworks' business, that they're going to come in and they're going to start making weird decisions and forcing the company to make some kinds of very weird market decisions? Like, what are you thinking of? Like, only buy Banksy. (laughs) Um, 
I don't know. They they don't know anything about art. I don't know. Honestly, I don't have an answer to that. I mean, they don't know about the art market. And they say they don't know anything about the art market. The only thing we can say right now, I think with absolute certainty, is that they've become, through this platform, Masterworks, they've become a major player on the buy side. And that's nothing to sniff at. Everybody wants to do business with them. In fact, they are getting absolutely top preferential payment terms from auction houses, which is also all spelled out in their offering plans. So auction houses give Masterworks really amazing payment terms. They buy something in November, they can pay next June. In the meantime, they have all these months to file with the SEC, to launch the IPO, to sell the IPO to the investors. And by the time they pay Christie's or Sotheby's, they're out. They've already been bought out by the retail investors. So only top, 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 top clients, like mega collectors or famous dynasties of dealers, these are the kind of terms they're getting. You know, normally a buyer would pay within 30 days, maybe 90 days. And then on the private art transactions, when Masterworks buys from individual dealers, you know, I've seen 10-month payment plans. So as far as Masterworks goes, I think they are brilliant, really. And these retail investors, in a way, like all of the risks are spelled out in this tiny, tiny fund in the offering plans. All the risks that the market can turn and that this and that. But, you know, it's very hypothetical until... The market crashes. And I don't think this generation, as we're talking about probably people into their 40s, 20s, 30s, 40s, like these are young people who haven't experienced maybe even the recession of 2008. They've only seen the market that's been going up and up and up. So it seems like almost like unreal and things are going to work out. And hopefully they will, you know. One thing that always surprises people is that the art market gets a ton of attention. It's very glamorous. It gets a lot of headlines. But in the larger scheme of things in the financial markets, the art market is tiny. Back in 2020, I think the macro number for the art and antiques market was $50 billion. And that includes antiques. That's smaller than the watch market by a long shot. That's smaller than pretty much any market that you have out there for a seriously scaled luxury good. Have the people behind Masterworks or any of the other people who are really pushing this fractional art investing, do they talk about the size of the potential art market that these kinds of financial tools could help build? Yeah, I I don't know if it was one of these companies. I just remember reading, I can't remember exactly where, I just remember like trillions of dollars, an untapped market for fine art is a lot bigger than what we know and what's active. But it's so hard to gauge, right? Because all of it is in the shadows. I think that's a great note to end on because it sounds like we have no idea what's going on here. (laughs) It could be be the future of the art market. It could be a gigantic scam (laughs) In one way or the other. You know, a a lot of um, art funds in the past went down in flames in really ignominious ways. I mean, there have been, you know, embezzlement suits, lawsuits. I mean, the history of art finance is littered with these dead companies. And do you think it's going to be any different this time? 
I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know. I don't see why it would be different just because there are more people involved. It's not more people with more connoisseurship or more understanding. You still are dealing with this kind of asymmetry of knowledge and access and information because masterworks can get all these preferential treatments, right? From the auction houses or from other sellers. They can get discounts that their clients would never get. Their clients, if they were ever able to afford anything at Christie's or Sotheby's or Phillips, they would never get six months to pay for what they bought. They would never know how to play this whole guarantee game, which is another thing that Masterworks does. So Masterworks may come out well in all of this, but I don't think necessarily the investors will. It just really depends on the timing of the market. Gotcha. It's such a pleasure talking to you about these incredibly arcane uh, art business topics because you make it sound like a true crime TV show. And I appreciate that. So thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle. Thank you so much. It was a fun conversation. Well, that's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. We'll help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manoli, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.